0: Hi, gente, welcome to Peruvian City USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So, let's get started. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. All right. Welcome, the Dennis Investor, to Peruvians of USA Book Club. <laughs> We're so excited to have you here. I am thrilled that you're here. First of all, let me just say thank you for writing such a beautiful book. This month, we read Breathe and Count Back from 10. As I mentioned, and as I showed you earlier, I have a bunch of little sticky notes. I have highlighted certain quotes, certain things that were special to me. It's definitely a bug that I would have loved to have when I was a young girl trying to figure out my way in this world, being an immigrant, having parents who are Peruvian. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you to the audience who is joining to have this discussion. How are you today, Natalia?
1: <laughs> thank you so much, Natalie. And thank you all so much for being here. I'm I'm so honored. Like I, this means a lot to me and um, you know, I, I when I wrote this book, I I remember one of my deepest wishes for it was that, you know, fellow Peruvians would read it. And the fact that you all are here, it just, it means the world. So thank you.
0: So I'm going to read a brief bio so members of the audience can just get to know you a little bit more. So Nadella Silvestre is the award-winning author of several novels for adults and young adults. Chasing in the Sun was named Best Debut Book of 2014 by Latinidad. And everyone knows you go home, won an international Latino book award. And in 2018, Jesse H. Jones award for best work of fiction from the Texas Institute of Letters. I mean, you're making us all proud here, Natalia, (laughs) congratulations (laughs) with all these accolades and awards. You were born in Lima, Peru and came to the U.S. at the age of four and grew up in Florida and Rio Grande Valley in Texas. You received a DA in creative writing from the University of Miami. And was a 2021 visited associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin and was formerly a faculty member at the Mild High MFA program at Regis University. All right. Oh my God, I'm so impressed with your awards for writing. I'm so thankful that we connected through Peruvian sisters. This is the point. This is the point of Peruvius of USA. I started Peruvius of USA two years ago in the middle of the pandemic because I wanted to find community within the Peruvian diaspora. There's so many of us out there and we're not connected and we have that technology to be connected. And also growing up, I didn't know about Peruvian authors. I didn't know about Peruvian professionals. And so it's my goal to interview those professionals, interview people doing, having interesting stories and and, and recording those stories so that others have access to, to those stories and feel connected to them, feel inspired by them. and feel like they're not Alone in their own experiences, because so many of us are the only Peruvians that we know. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, you've done such a beautiful job with that. And honestly, I was I was going to say the same thing when you mentioned um that it that it reminds us we're not alone because you know growing up, um, even though I grew up in Miami, which has a very large Peruvian population, um you know most of the Peruvians I knew were my family, so I didn't really uh grow. And then when we moved, because we moved to Central Florida, then we moved to Texas, and you know in the past few years I've lived in Austin as well. I've always um. I always felt a little, bit of that out, like a little bit of an outsider in that sense. And yeah, like following your account and everyone you feature, it's, it is that reminder of like, wow, look at us. We're here. We're powerful. We're doing all these great things. Yeah. Really great.
0: yeah, we're doing we're doing amazing things. And I want the future generations of Peruvian American or just Peruvians around the world to realize like uh, to have this repository of stories that they can listen to. Thank you for being part of it. So first I wanted to start with some rapid fire questions to get the audience to get to know you a little bit. They should be easy. <laughs> and so I guess the first section of the rapid fire questions are, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say this word? Okay. All right. Peru.
1: Oh, my God. Love. <laughs> the U.S. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, my mind just went blank. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I, I think of home, but I also think of that with Benotuling. Like it was so it's, it's one of those that constant pool, isn't yeah. it, for me? Because I grew up here, but, but it was like where my heart is. So, yeah.
0: um, books,
1: everything, <laughs> women, now that freedom,
0: yeah, <laughs> awesome. Your favorite Peruvian dish. <laughs> oh, I just had that last week and it's so good.
1: <laughs> I was like, you're going to ask because it's like, it depends on what day you ask. It's either that or no, I'm either torn. So-
0: mm, okay. I know some like to mix it. I actually like both, but I don't mix it.
1: <laughs> you know, I've never done that either. Uh, I know, I've i seen it. Um, I guess I'm a purist in that sense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I don't want it to touch. <laughs> uh, what about music? Why no of the single?
1: Oh, you know, I don't know them. Oh, my God. Does that make me a bad Peruvian? No, it doesn't. It does not. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like or is it was one of those things that I don't realize I know. I mean, I don't know the name of.
0: Okay. Okay. So it's <laughs> just different styles of dancing and music from either from like La Sierra, the Andes part, or, you know, Pestanque was mostly Afro-Peruvian. And so folks have, sometimes the answer is depends on the time of the night. All right. So let's get started with uh, learning a little bit about your immigration story. I know you came when you were very young, you were four years old, but I am curious, what is that, how would you describe that experience of immigrating here to the US? What did your parents tell you? Because many of us who came young, we rely on the stories of our parents of what they tell us, why they came, how was the situation there? And so what can you share with us about your your own immigrant story coming?
1: Yeah, um, so it's something that I think changed over time, like the narratives. I remember when I first, when we got, like you said, we got here when I was four. So I feel like my memory started here. Like really some of my earliest memories are here. And I don't remember Peru from when I was, when I lived here, when I was born. Or at least that's what I thought for the longest time. Because there was a brief period where we actually lived in Costa Rica first. And then we came to the U.S. So for the really longest time, I thought my memory had started in Costa Rica. And one day when I was like 20 something, I told my mom, I was like, yeah, because I remember this one night where all the lights went out and we lit candles and like her whole face just kind of fell and she was like that was Nima and that was that was the Avalones the blackouts and that was you know because I was there in the late 80s when um you know when the black one said that I would attack the electric grid and everything and I think there were things that she probably thought well it's a good thing I don't remember but that was my first memory and um which was such a contrast to the the memory, like I, I actually didn't, so I didn't grow up with memories of Bidu, but I felt a real strong sense of connection to it because for the longest time, we didn't, we didn't, while we were sorting out our immigration situation and, you know, getting that green card in order, we didn't get to go back until I was like 12. <clears throat> so that to me felt like the first time I'd gone back. But in all those years, you know, my parents really made an effort to make sure that we felt connected to to Bidu and to our family still there, um to our culture. Like I remember my mom at one point, she actually um, sent for a, fam- for a relative when they came to visit. She had them bring Peruvian textbooks. So when we would come home from school, my sister and I would have to learn Peruvian history. And wow. yeah, and it was just really wonderful. Like, it, like we just, I mean, at the time I was like... In, third grade, and I probably was like, oh, why do we need more more, more schoolwork? <laughs> but I value it so much now. Uh, and, you know, you know, we grew up with, like, homemade Peruvian meals, and I would complain about, like, why can't we just have a burger? You know, it's like, you always want what other people have. Um, but I really, I, I feel so lucky that we just, we didn't have to detach, even as we were um, being raised to really, like, to be in a country where, like, you know, English very quickly became my dominant language. Um, my my parents really, made, they would pretend not to understand me when I tried to speak to them in English so that I could, you know, so that I could preserve my Spanish. And even then I still get a little bit um, insecure about it at times because it's not this, like I'm not as strong in it as I am in English. Um, and then over the years, I think it also just, you know, when I finally did get to visit, uh, to really start to um to go back and, and and be with family members who would point out the places like say, here was your home, you know, this was a apartment, this is the bed, the bedroom apartment where I, you know, you remember that story about how Nona had to like go up a ladder to, you know, to rescue you because you've been locked in the room and you know, all these things where you start to piece your history together and you realize here are where my roots and my history are too in addition to um to the place where you you grow up and, and identify as home, you know. So it's always been, for me, like they're, they're they coexist. And, and for a really long time, I honestly felt sometimes insecure about, um, like, what, you know, am I Peruvian enough? You know, like, because I'd been, you know, I'd, I'd grown up really um, first in Miami and in central Florida and then in Texas, um, not really seeing myself immersed in a community that reflected um, the community and the, the culture that I experienced at home. Um, but you know, over time, I just, I kind of just became, I, I learned to really embrace it and, and understand. Like, and I think that's why I think your your account is so beautifully and aptly named. Like, it's Peruvians of USA. Like, these are built parts of us, and that's okay. And it doesn't make us less than anyone. Um, it just means that our experiences are very different. And and and, and acknowledging too that in, in in sometimes in very privileged ways, um, from you know from from all sorts of different experiences that exist right Peruvians in different countries Peruvians in Peru like and yet we have so much in common that we can celebrate too so um so yeah I don't know if that answers your question no it, yeah it definitely
0: does and it reminds me of like something you wrote on your book already and I'm going to try, tie our conversations to to the lessons and to the things I reflected on the book here on the book you said and if you have the book it's page 111 you said Meanwhile, I get split into all these little pieces, Peruvian, disabled, immigrant, fragmented, as if I couldn't possibly be everything all at once and more. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. Growing up here, I felt like I had to sort of be something else when I walked out the door and go to school and be like this, as best I could be American kid. And then when I walk home, it was Peru. but it was It was being Peruvian with a touch of America because I was the oldest and so I had to sort of help and guide my parents through the, you know, navigating this whole new country because I was able to pick up the language quickly and I was their translator. But then when we connected with family in Peru, then I had to kind of revert back to being like that Peruvian kid that left when I was 10. And I always felt like, who am I? And my family, my Peruvian family calls me Sofia which is my middle name, but here in the U.S., everybody calls me by my first name, Natalie. And for the longest time, I feel very fragmented, like you described here. And I guess, to be honest, for me, creative Produce USA and finding this community has finally allowed me to feel less fragmented and less divided. I'm just like, I have everything and more, right? So like, at what point did you feel that? Was it recently or was it as you, you know, as you're putting together this beautiful book or like, when did you feel less fragmented?
1: Gosh, I do feel like it probably was recently. Because oh, I really did so much of what you said. Like, I remember the first time that I visited Peru, my and I was so excited, like I said, because I was like, oh my God, I'm finally going to like visit, you know, my home country and this place that's largely exists in my imagination. Um, and when I got there, my cousins called La Americana. <laughs> and then here in the US, I was like, where are you from? And then I would tell people Peru and they'd be like, they kind of stare at me blankly. I mean, I think more people know about Peru now, but when I was young, everyone would just stare at me blankly. And I always had to be like, it's in Latin America. Or now I'd be like, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, it's in South America. And like, it's right next to so Colombia. Like, I had to be giving geography lessons at the same time. Um, so, it, but yeah, I think that really over time, I think in the last few years, um, where it's, it, community plays such a big part in it, you know, to find. Your community and 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 not only to find um you know like i've been very lucky that i've being a, being a writer i've also um got to know a lot of fellow peruvian writers uh, and that's helped me realize i'm not alone and that maybe we don't we shouldn't ever feel like we have to um only have like be half of something right um and, and it's still a gradual process there's i think it's it's something that can change over time or at least some days you feel more secure in yourself than others, um, but. I think definitely the process of writing this book helps me in that too. Um, uh, and not just in um you know, in, in terms of who I am um, as a Ferrara, but like really just as a as a whole being and also, you know, even as a disabled Latina, as an immigrant, as someone who loves to swim, you know, they loves she wants to be a mermaid and that's where her like fantasies live. And that part of her is equally valid, even though her parents are very invested in her having this very serious future. That's, you know, bodies, the American dream. Um, so I, yeah, I I feel like like when you said, Oh, this is a bug that you would have loved to have as a teen. I feel that because I think I wrote it wishing i would had something like that too. Yeah.
0: And I completely resonate with your mermaid dreams and goals um i remember when i was younger i wanted to be like a backup dancer not even like the main dancer, just a backup dancer. <clears throat> oh my god like if i could be like the backup dancer to one of jlo's videos or something like that i was like i made it that's my life goal and obviously parents are like what
1: <laughs> i wanted to be a cowgirl <laughs> Oh my God, it was, like, that was my biggest dream. And then my grandmother one day, because, you know, my grandmother mostly, like she, she spoke a little bit of English here and there, but mostly you know, my grandmother didn't speak a lot of English. Um, well, she doesn't speak a lot of English, but one day she goes to me, ¿Te crees la chile? You know, and she just, like, was, she, you know, so now that's our big thing. Like whatever, we don't, like she made up this word instead of cheerleader. And now it's like the one way that we just joke around every time we want to take someone down a peg. Like we think they are being a little too full of themselves. <laughs> but yeah, no, I definitely, I think that yeah, this idea of our dreams being a little bit out there, right? When um, the generation that came before sacrificed a lot, hoping that you know, they have an idea of what a better life looks like, and if those two things don't match up, it can be really difficult.
0: Yeah. And then um, tying them back to the book again, in page fifty-one, where you say, uh, "Sometimes Leslie doesn't get it. She doesn't know what it's like to have parents who constantly remind you, either in words or by actions." That the endless hard work they endure in this country is all so you can have a better life than they did. As a result, of consciously, you're always measuring, comparing, asking, am I doing enough ju- to justify what they gave up to come here? You carry all the dreams to, into your future, which is somehow also theirs, wrapped up in their past and present. You fear making mistakes. You dread coming up short. Of their expectations and you can think of nothing worse than disappointing them because in this family the opposite of pride is not shame it's guilt wow <laughs> i mean just have you put that so beautifully and succinctly i think what so many immigrant kids feel the pressure that we put on ourselves i remember friends would ask me like why do I have this drive to achieve X, Y, Z when I was in school? Why did I put so much pressure on me? And I would see also some of my other friends whose parents would put pressure on them, but they had the tools to help them, right? And my parents did not have the tools and resources to help me. So it's like pressure without the support, which is like, then you have to be your own advocate. You have to be your own sort of support. When I spoke to Melissa Rubin, she's also a Peruvian-American writer, she said she couldn't possibly match and telling her family like that she's going to be a writer like that's something that you do for fun right like it's not a career her family was go be a lawyer or like something serious so how did you communicate to your family beyond your your mermaid dreams right
1: oh my gosh yeah that's a hard question to answer I feel like I wrote the book and I still don't know exactly the answers but I wrote it to try and get to them um, I think the first thing is that like I you know my parents we're like, they're very different from Beto's parents in a lot of ways. And, and that's important to me when I write, cause I need to create distance in order to write characters. I can't like just put people from my life directly in. I feel like it's it's, 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 there's weird lines of privacy and all these things, um, that get crossed there. But, um, but of course then oftentimes though, it ends up probably there's inspiration and things are rooted in troops. And maybe one character is inspired by someone else unexpected, for example. Um, I think for me, though, what I remember, like, my parents never, like, explicitly said any of those things, right? And I don't think they ever would if they thought that would be, like, hurtful. But I think there's just more, like, kids are very observant and we can see whether you have someone who tells you that, like, no, you have to, you know, achieve better than us or whether you just are observing the sacrifices and the hardships every day, day in and day out that they're going through just to like make sure you get to school, just to make sure that you're, you know, that you, that you, um, you know, even just telling you. I remember at a very young age, my, my parents told me, like, if you want to go to college, you're gonna have to get a scholarship. And that wasn't them being mean or anything. It was just the reality of it. They were like, we don't know how else we would afford it. Um, and, and that's, and that's always really surprising to people because, you know, my father, um, my father's a doctor and he when he got when we got to the us he wasn't going to pursue that path anymore because there's this whole process of getting recertified but he instead just he chose to like start over again from like being a resident on and so I grew up in this weird position where people were like oh your father's a doctor you guys are well off then you're great and it's like things were really hard you know in, in a lot of ways obviously like um there's I'm sure there's other people who had all sorts of different challenges. So I'm not trying to misrepresent my experience, but we definitely had this sense of like if we want opportunities, we have to create them. And um for me, I remember I always wanted to pursue the art. I wanted to be a singer, model, actress, dancer. <laughs> and it's not that it's not that there wasn't it's not that there was like I was ever told no don't do it. It was just that there was a sense of like I just never felt like it would be enough. We didn't even have like the resources to even, if I wanted to take those kinds of classes for a while, like um, it wasn't until like I was in middle school that I took like first dance class, you know? Um, so I think for me, what was challenging was to let go of the sense of shame that I'd internalized. And and that's very rooted in the fact that we really, really care what our parents think. We really, really do. Like, you know, like it's it's a hard thing to just tell. And that's kind of what I meant when like in that, in that paragraph when it's like, Leslie just doesn't get it. And of course she wouldn't, right? Um I think I end up like as I got older when I started college, I was still very much in that mindset. I actually thought I am I never thought I was going to be an author. Um to this day my day job is still like I, I my path was journalism, uh magazines, then copywriting and marketing. And that's still my day job, you know, because I needed like how else will I pay my bills and support myself? Um But there came a time when I also just was like, Well, I also what would this be the idea of success, if I'm not happy doing it, if I'm also not, like, if my parents sacrifice so much, um, wouldn't me honoring them also mean that I'm not, like, if I'm going to sacrifice my efforts, my time, and my hard work into a career or a life, then I need to also make it worth it, right? Um, and if I'm not happy at the end of the day, then I think maybe they wouldn't be either. Um, and and if they wouldn't, though, at the end of the day, like, I mean, in my case, my parents were very supportive <laughs> with that. Um, but I think the hard part is realizing like, yeah, like whose power are you giving the weight of your happiness to? And sometimes it's not ourselves. Sometimes it's very hard to take that and say it's, it's okay. It's like if maybe they, if, if the people around us can't see why this matters to us, but if it's, you know, somehow feeding our souls and our happiness, then that has to at one point be enough. Because there's going to be a point where you really can't change how people around you feel. And you can have those hard conversations and hopefully that becomes a window to it. Um, but if if that doesn't work out, then you have to also be the one to say, well, this is my path.
0: Yeah, and and just to um, add into to that, when you do choose your path, your colleague, you will be presented with opportunities you couldn't even have imagined if you just stuck to like the traditional path or whatever, say, um so there, it's, it's it feels risky and in many ways it is but you know like I what I've seen that the moments where I've taken that risk the moments where I'm like you know what I'm going to choose this path it's when those opportunities have come up that mm-hmm. have been amazing and so um yeah, yeah.
1: definitely resonate with that um <laughs> to good point too because I mean there's been so many times especially as I've gotten older that like I, I think when I was like 30. Or I remember one day thinking, oh, my God, my parents were this age when they just packed up and came to the U.S. And I just thought I could never, I can't imagine it, you know, the, the amount of risk, the, the, the just going into an unknown, you know, like that. Um, but in a way, our, when we create our own paths, we're doing that in our own way, too. So, like, how is that not also honoring, you know, and saying, hey, I'm actually taking inspiration from you, from your courage and your bravery, but I'm just doing it in a different way. It looks different for me than it is for you like we might not be going to a completely new country but maybe we're forging completely new paths
0: wow i never thought about it that way but that is so true you're going into the unknown just a different unknown wow yeah so in the book the main character has hip dysplasia and so i'm going to define it for the first on the call and and you can correct me in any way like this is me like googling <laughs> the socket in the pelvis into which the femoral head fits is too shallow to support the femoral head. And so that could cause, that causes um, it's sort of like difficulty walking. And so I appreciated that this character was so complex in many ways. One of them being she has hip dysplasia and that causes a lot of conversations around body and body boundaries, which I don't have hip dysplasia, but I have those same concerns about body Boundaries as I was growing up, our bodies changed throughout our entire lives. And I'm still having those boundaries questions, those uh, questions of like, how do I continue to love my body and accept it? You have hip dysplasia. So tell us a bit about that experience. How young were you when you started registering this, that this will be now part of your experience growing up? And how I guess I want to say make peace, but what uh, because it's for especially for women, but I think for many of us now with social media too, we're not at peace with our bodies, we're almost at constant war with our bodies. And this book helped me be more at peace with my body.
1: That means a lot. Um, because you're right, there's even just the language we use around our bodies sometimes are very much um, focused on like fights and war, you know, just you're like even just that phrase of war on our bodies feels very apt. Um, yeah, I am. So I was born with dysplasia, and so by the time um, I was, you know, two or three, I'd already had several surgeries that I didn't remember. Um, that, so, 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 so. I guess the question of when it registered, it actually never registered. It was just always. It just always was. This was my reality, and <clears throat> for lack of a better term, it was my normal. You know, and I say normal in quotes because I don't like even in the book I question that word. Like, you know, there's if everyone has a different normal, then is there even a normal? And there's, it, that word can be used to weaponize one person's experience as more valid than another. Um, but yeah, I grew up um, being in and out of surgeries and I, you know, starting at a young age uh, would be uh, homeschooled while I recovered from surgeries and I'd be in casts and crutches. And um, it was not something that ever felt, how do I put it? It never bothered me. It, it the it, it, What bothered me was what i it was other people's perceptions of my body. what was hard was the bullying of you know you know and the stairs and people who just treated me like I was some you know like they just didn't know what to do with me and there was you know a lot of i remember you know kids would make fun of how I walked they they would imitate me, they would laugh, they would point at my scars um <clears throat> in in my home i was very i felt very supported, and it wasn't like I said it really until I was like outside of that safety where it was just, the world is not kind to disabled people. Um, And, you know, at at least for me, like I didn't, I wasn't, I never, I didn't feel at war with my body until I started to feel ostracized for it. And then I started then to internalize that shame and wish my body were different, uh, trying to hide parts of myself, trying to hide my scars, trying to hide the lifts that were in my shoe, like all these different things. And then on top of it then, things that you bring up too is like you add that as you grow um you add to that your experience as um you know a young girl growing up in a society that is very satphobic that you know gives young women all sorts of body image issues and that shames us for when we are stepping into our sexuality so that it's all just so layered and and ultimately it results in this uh, just deeply rooted shame um that i just it's too much for us to carry. It's 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 so hurtful and harmful, and we don't deserve to carry it. And we, you know, I I wanted to reach a point where I started to question it. Like, why? Why are we? Why do we do this? And and who who benefits from it? Right? It's not us. We're only being hurt more, and then we end up hurting others because then it's like you know we're we're if we're not questioning these certain standards, then we're perpetuating them, whether consciously or not. So um it was just something i was really trying to work out in this, in this book and i think you know vero for her it can't, it, and for so many of us it comes down to agency you know like um uh, the the freedom to be able to do with your body um to 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 feel like you can just exist in your body without that shame you know and and have control over um, you know who decides its fate you know how you move through the world the choices that you make um again also very layered when you're you know f- like for me as a as a disabled latina like i think a lot of um so so much of my experience growing up really had to do with this will we or won't we be able to stay as my parents were sorting out immigration right so you grow up internalizing this idea that somebody can tell you some higher power can tell you where you belong and can at any moment tell you know you're you know you can't you can't stay here you get not belong here you have to go um and what it ends up happening is it's like yeah there's this um lack of control of movement right of, of of just migration of where we can um be where we can exist where we can call home um and for me that intersects a lot with my experiences as a disabled person right um like there was a point in which i was writing the book and i was like wow like they don't you know, she, even down in her bones, her hip, her socket isn't quite fitting in her skeleton. And I just, that resonated a lot with me because I was like, there's so many times I felt like I didn't fit quite right. I wasn't quite in alignment in the spaces around me. Um, and why would we when we're not, we don't grow up with this, you know, we don't really grow up with this very welcoming <laughs> um, message, right? Um, when we're in a country that just wants to, either to assimilate or or wants to exclude us. so that that idea of like yeah of agency is for me is really it's rooted too in like who whose voice gets to matter and, and when when you then decide like <clears throat> what is it you want in the world, what does um what does your future look like? Like who, who will get to decide that? Like that's Vero's ultimate like mm-hmm. question that she has to go through. Mm-hmm. And it's something I'm still exploring all the time.
0: Yeah, I think that the theme of agency definitely resonated a lot with me, and it made me think about agency as a young Latina girl, as a young Peruvian girl, not just here in the U.S., where in some ways you can say, you know, your parents are trying to protect you from things that they don't even know or understand by being super strict and giving you all these rules. Even in my own family, I've noticed how the women and the girls in Peru as well don't have agency over their own bodies it's almost like somebody else is controlling them the male figures in the family because it impacts their pride it impacts their reputation as a family and i guess it also made me think about as you're describing your experience here and how you never felt at war with your body except until like perhaps you started to navigate this world and this world wasn't as welcoming to you and your experience was there any similarity when you were in Peru? Like, how was it being, you know, having hip dysplasia here and having to, you know, navigate here and then navigate in Peru? I haven't been back in several years, but I guess my memory is we're not, we're not friendly. We don't have friendly, we're not accessible to like, uh, folks with different abilities like i'm thinking of like Vedas, like sidewalks and mm-hmm. all the things that we have here which are great but i mean obviously there are ways that we can improve here but i guess i'm curious about your experience being a disabled woman in peru
1: yeah yeah i mean i think those are these are the the problems of accessibility exist everywhere i mean it's not unique to the u.s at all um and it's very much rooted in, in this idea of like who who do you um who gets to matter in your society, you know? And I mean, one of the things that always shocked me was that when we speak, you know, I'm, I'm really curious about language and I'm always like going back and forth with translation. So even just the fact that the word in Spanish for disabled, like we say it like what a horrible way, like really just the language is saying it right there. Just say invalid, you know, like, and we say that in English too, but not as much, I guess. I don't know, like, I think it's like going, I, I don't hear it as... I don't hear it spoken as freely, I guess, that I do in Spanish. And we, we have a lot of work to do still in and in, in just even um, um in the in, in just addressing the fact that disabled people have basic human rights like anyone else. Um I when I like every time I've been in Peru, like I I don't know that I I think at the time I don't know that I was self aware enough. So I it's it's not something that I can really probably um speak to in terms of like oh i felt this xyz when i was physically there um, <clears throat> because part of what i feel is part of my experience as a disabled woman is that there were years when i didn't admit to myself that i was one because it is a way like there's 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 this tendency to um to make it to that our society gives us this idea that it's like a bad word and that like who would want to claim it and there's so much again so much shame associated with it. so we really have to like come to a point where we're like questioning that internalized ableism and willing to reject it. Um, So, but I, yeah, I, I, like I said, I just think it's something that needs to be integrated across cultures. It's definitely um, like even in, in in the book, like Meadow's parents really, they're trying their best, but they're also, you know, even when it's coming from a place of love, they're not always giving her full agency over her body. Um, and not just when it comes to her hip dysplasia or her medical conditions, but also, yeah, there's um like when you were mentioning um, you know, your experiences and seeing the ways that women are not given agency and put in the same way, there's so much shame like that comes from just sec- like like that the worst thing we could be is like is sexual beings, you know, and it's so rooted in like this and in, in religion and like and just passed down through generations. Um in, in that even. It, it It's just so like, to me, it felt very stifling to realize that that there's all this, a lot of restrictions around propriety, you know, what would people think?
0: Thank you for bringing up the, that you are interested in defining because if you, you read the book, you see here that you define suffocate what that, you know, Oxford Dictionary would, uh, how they would define it, which is the prime of oxygen by force. And then you define it <laughs> or Veronica. Veno defines it as to take the life out of someone with too much pressure. So I love that. I was like, that is so neat because it warns me to people different things, right? Like you brought up Invalido, which you're right. I never thought about it. But yeah, it's like discarding. It's like this person's disposable, right? And so uh, I, and one of the things that <clears throat> uh, made me, I guess, a more mindful person is when there's a scene, I think, when Danny says that's super lame. And you say here, when did a when did a word that describes a person who limps becomes synonymous with boring and bad and uncool? And I will be honest and say I use that I use late like, to say like, oh, you know. And I caught myself saying that a conversation with my husband. I was like, No, I can't say it anymore. That's so rude And so thank you for like just teaching me like to be thoughtful about like the words I say but yeah, I, I mean and value though lame like those are Words that had a specific meaning, perhaps at the beginning, and then we evolved to to mean something else, right? So, um, I love that you love languages and that you love to define them here. So, I definitely want to give the audience a, a, like the last ten minutes or so to ask their questions. But I will want to touch on another and another topic, Alex. <laughs> In the <book. laughs> Alex, the boyfriend. <laughs> I was like, what a healthy guy <laughs> or a young man. I mean, we. I've been born, I like growing up, at least my generation, just talks of masculinity, seeing it left and right. I don't, I was telling my husband, I don't recall reading a young adult book as a young girl and seeing like, wow, yeah, that's, that's a, a great guy. You know, how emotionally he has high EQ, emotional, <laughs> yeah. and how it's almost like I want young men to read the book as well, because it is possible to be a young man, to be a man in this world, and be emotionally intelligent, be attuned to your partner's cues, it, it takes effort, right? It's not, it's not. It doesn't just come naturally, but I was like, what a beautiful example to give a young girl who's reading this book, and hopefully a young guy, is also reading this, how you can navigate this world and not be toxic, mm-hmm. and yes. not have to prove your masculinity to the way that we have traditionally have in the past, so... What is Snyder (laughs) Alex? Who (laughs) is the Alex in your world?
1: (laughs) I love you brought that up because um, you know, in all honesty, when I first started writing Alex, he was going to be more of that toxic masculinity. Like he, he really, and it's because at the time, I just I was look I was thinking of the examples from my youth. Um, a lot of the people that I remember like being infatuated by, who ultimately would like hurt me and made me feel less than. Um, and it was becoming really hard to write the book when, with him like that. And I realized it's because I wanted better for Vero. I didn't want to just keep perpetuating the same thing. And and if you read the book, you see that it's not like it doesn't, it's not like I'm pretending that everything's perfect. Like she has had her share of really terrible experiences. Um, But the one that I wanted to really focus on and center in this book, I just thought like, First of all, I, I've, I have a lot of faith in our young people. I see them shedding a lot of this, these, the toxicity that we have carried for generations. I see them with very clear self-awareness of what they're choosing to perpetuate or choosing to question. Um, and, and, and just like a lot more sensitivity that is not necessarily a bad thing, right? When people, I always say like when people tell us like, oh, you're being too sensitive. And it's like, no, maybe we're not being sensitive enough. Maybe we've gotten this far just disrespecting people and not thinking of who we're leaving behind. So yeah, Alex really came from this place of like, I want Vero to feel safe and loved and in all the ways she deserves. And I wanted the same for Alex. You know, he has depression. He has been through a lot. Um, and they both have um, these visible and invisible scars that they carry. And it, it helps them see each other and hear each other in ways that maybe other people in their lives aren't able to do. Um, and I just think that, why not have that example be something in, in a book that, that someone can look to and, and think, hey, I want this, right? And I deserve this. And um, yeah, and honestly, there were already so many things in writing this book that were me kind of digging into places and in old ones, places that felt very vulnerable, that I also needed to bring a lot of light, lightness into it, a lot of hope and happiness. And I couldn't have gotten through the process of writing this book if it was only pain. Right, and and I think life isn't only pain. Life is full of these dualities, and I wanted to capture that. So yeah, that's really um, what inspired Alex. Like I, I just, I wanted, you know, her. Like I wanted Alex and Vito to, to feel safe in each other.
0: Yeah, because it is possible. It, yeah, and I want young women and women and young men and men to to realize that that it is possible to to feel that safe to to feel like somebody sees you um and so i that's i just wanted to apply what a beautiful example again i was like i wish i would have read this it would have saved me so many heartbreaks (laughs) 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 um but thank you for for writing this book for being here with us to the audience for any questions or, or just like any feedback about your reactions to to the book please this is your moment so Right, so let's hear from Lucette. Hi Natalie, first of all, I
1: love the book. i Loved Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I loved Alex and Richard Just so much. I wanted to know. Is there a possibility for a sequel? Oh <laughs> um, thank you, first of all. It, i that means a lot that you love the book. Um I would love to write a sequel. I right now it, one of those things that's up to the publishing gods, I guess, um, whether it gets published often depends on the performance of a book. Um, I haven't personally written one yet. Um, I have thought of it. I, I'm not, you know, not going to lie and say I haven't thought of it because I, I, a lot of my heart kind of still stays with these characters. So it would be wonderful to be able to do that. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Anyone else?
2: Hi, I um, just wanted uh, to comment. Uh, glad no one said any spoilers. I found out about this through Instagram through uh, Peruvian Sisters, and and now I'm here. And I uh, I stated earlier with um, that I'm here at uh, at my at my workplace. The library closed at eight, and it was going to take me half hour to get home. So my boss bossing permission just to close up the place instead. <laughs> yep, and um, just going to share this. I work in Westchester County in New York and my library system has purchased seven copies of your books. And one of them is even here in my library right now. And I wasn't even looking for this. I was, I, I, I have it ordered and shipped to my house and I was just walking by and this was this is in our new young adult teen section.
1: Oh my so god! That, yep. That makes me so happy. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, and thank you for staying like you know, all the effort you went through just to be here tonight. That's amazing. Uh right,
2: no, no worries. Yeah. I'm excited to read this book. I'm excited. I was excited when I found out you, um, you wrote this book, uh, as well as for like, um, for people with uh, disabilities, but as well as uh, the Peruvian identity, of course, and I am, I am an aspiring author myself. I had recently graduated with a bachelor's in literature and, uh, I don't have any, anything like this in mind of writing my, uh. My um, senior project to get my my bachelors involved, um, I wrote a compilation that studied the uh, Inca mythologies, basically. And that was really fun. And it also started my journey into what is, what does it mean to be Peruvian to me? And you, uh, everything you said nailed uh, nailed, out of the park, whatever the expression is. So I'm very excited to read this book. And I don't mind maybe two more days away by tracking number. I might just take this out already.
1: Oh my God, thank you. And I'm so excited for your writing too. Like, please stay in touch because I'm always so excited to connect with other Peruvian writers.
2: That would also be the goal to one day be where you are, giving my <laughs> own presentation on my book.
1: So, of course, and that's the thing. And we, we need like to support each other. And I just, I always just want more and more of us, you know, so. Excellent. So- yeah, I'll book your coin. You can talk
0: about your book in the podcast. <laughs> All right. So I guess I'm going to put a lot of pressure on Christina, but if Christina, you don't have any questions, let me see. Let me give her a minute. Um i oh, No questions. Just that, um, I really like the book. Um, a lot of I try to find a lot of the Latin, um, Latin American or US Latin American writers. Um, I like this is the first of a Peruvian one that I
1: have because it's not usually the one that is that's commonly available. Well um so I would say definitely check out Melissa Rivera's work. Um Angela Velez is another young adult author and her first book came out in March I believe of this year earlier this year. Um it's called um Nulo and Milagros Search for Clarity. Um and also, like, so there's a lot. There's a I, I'm terrible sometimes of like off the top of my head, but I will be, ha- I'll have share. chair more. I posted um several Peruvian authors on Instagram too for 22 de Julio. Cause I was like, there's, you know, I want there to be more of us and, and we're here, we're we're doing work and we're also trying to help one another Um, always, you know, get our voices out there and heard. Yeah.
0: Well, Natalia and to the audience, thank you so much for joining this call. Please get yourself a copy, get, Give this as a gift to someone, you know, the holidays are coming. Let's make this a, a very popular book. Well, let's make sure that other Peruvians know about it. You know, we all have shared here. This is many of us, it's the first Peruvian author that we're reading. It's the first time we're seeing ourselves reflected in the story. So give that gift to someone else. Buy, the, buy a copy, promote it. I definitely want more Peruvian authors to to be out there and for us to get to know them. So again to everybody, thank you so much, Natalia. I appreciate you so much. I thank you for writing this book. It has healed some parts of me, so I I definitely appreciate it.
1: Thank you all so much. This was so lovely. And thank you again, Natalie. It means a lot.
0: Just wanted to take a break here to share that Peruvians of USA now has an online store. Help us spread the message that el mejor amigo de un peruano es otro peruano by visiting our online store. We also have feminine versions that said la mejor amiga de una peruana es otra peruana or gender neutral versions. This could be the perfect gift for a Peruvian in your life. Visit the link on the episode notes or link in bio. All right, back to the episode. Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right. Talk to you soon. Ciao.